All right, here we are. We are here today on the first Sunday of the month, uh, praying to further our study of the book of Psalms. We are today in Psalm 48. Psalm 48, I'll begin by reading the psalm. It says, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As you have heard, as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your people. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the end of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Look, one of the things I distinctly remember when I was in elementary school, it was in kindergarten and I'm probably... Certain it doesn't take place today, but every time we would get ready to go to lunch, we would all, the whole class would get together and we would be led through a blessing. And it it would go something like, God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for our food. By His hands we must be fed, give us, Lord, our daily bread. Every single day. And then we would form that line and march right on up to the lunchroom. Now, that was just something that was just kind of, I guess, just planted in my head in kindergarten. You wouldn't think it would stick with you, but I can can vividly remember it. I could remember the blessing. I could remember the the classroom and everything associated around that. And there's there's a lot of theology in that little simple blessing. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him. Let us thank Him. I, I think that... That really fits what this psalmist is saying here. I know the title at the top of mine says, Zion, the city of our God. But I think that really misses the point. This psalm starts off, great is the Lord. This psalm ends saying, this is our God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The psalm is sandwiched concerning Yahweh, the Lord. It's not about Zion. So, I mean, I would title this, great, God is great, God is good. Just like we said as those five and six-year-old kids and some were in there a couple years and got to do the, <laughs> some got to do the, the blessing for two years. But anyway, let's start working through this, through this psalm. You notice at the top of this psalm, it's, the superscription says, A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, psalms have various superscriptions. Psalm 17 actually calls it a prayer of David. And this is called a song 
a psalm. Now, Psalm 30 actually says a psalm, a song. Maybe nothing to it. I don't know. There's a man by the name of John Richardson. And you may say, who's that? He's one of the ones who was, he was a, one of the ones who actually translated the Bible, the King James Bible. He was on that King James translation committee back in the 1600s. He actually says this, that the song refers to the voice. The music would be representative of the psalm itself. So in Psalm 30, what the psalmist is indicating is that the music begins and then the lyrics take off. Then the lyrics, the voice comes in afterwards. It it was indicators given to those who would sing these psalms. If that's the case, then verse 4... Psalm 48 begins with the lyrics. And then it's followed by music. It says a song, a psalm. So if, if John Richardson's correct, perhaps Psalm 48 begins with what we call a cappella. So now I'm going to give you my rendition of Psalm 48. <laughs> but no. Look, all right, so in your mind, everybody, everybody has a visual In your mind, what are you picturing when you picture worship in the temple? Well, if we were to look at Scripture and and kind of pull some clues from Scripture, it actually really paints a pretty clear picture. You have the construction of the temple. You have David, you know, kind of gathering all the, uh, the utensils and all the construction equipment and the stuff that's needed. They're, they're kind of shelling out roles that people, responsibilities inside the temple. We're told in 1 Chronicles 23, verse 5, that there will be 4,000 shall offer praises to the Lord with instruments that I have made for praise. David had made several instruments for praise. 4,000 musicians. We can go and read 1 Chronicles 25, and it talks about there that they were skilled. They were all skillful. They were trained in singing to the Lord. So I don't know how you mentally picture this, how you imagine, but the reality is this. The reality is there's 4,000 skilled, trained musicians singing to the Lord. I don't know that I've ever heard anything that's remotely close to that. But even that, even that unimaginable sight, it's going to pale in comparison to the praise we, that we see in heaven. And so he begins, Great is Yahweh, great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Great is the Lord. Now this is another thing that just happened to me this past week. I had the opportunity to go to a Braves game. Hadn't been to a Braves game in decades. Going over there. You know, I don't know really any of the players that much. My brothers, oh, no, no. This, this, this. Now this is a loose analogy, so try to follow with me here. This ball player, this particular ball player, he's good. Like, I know. He's in the pros. He's good. No, 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 no. He's, re- he's really good. Hits for a good average. Leads a team in home runs. Leads a team in stolen bases. Yeah, I know. He's good. No, no, no. He's really good. He's really good. Great glove. Great range. Cannon for an arm. I get it. I get it. He's good. No. He's really good. Good team leader. Good teammate. Good work ethic. I get it. He's good and he keeps on. I get it. He goes, no, you don't get it. 
Even outside the field, he's a, he's a good dad, a good husband, a good neighbor. He's good to the community. I get it, he's good. He's like, no, you don't get it. That's exactly what we see here, right? Those who know God, those who know God, just they can't, they can't help but praise Him. They can't help but sing about Him and speak about Him. And just the, the loose, yeah, God is good, well, you're saying that because He's God. In the same manner that I said, this guy's good because he's a pro. God's good because he's God. But they're like, no, you don't know how good he is. That's what, you don't understand his greatness. We don't grasp his greatness. You know, we sing that song, How Great is Our God. Sing with me, How Great is Our God. By the end of the song, you know, you're like, yeah, I get it, I get it. God's great. But I don't know that we truly grasp it. You know, when I read this, great is the Lord, my mind ran to Acts 19 out of all places, where there Paul has kind of upset those in Ephesus. And it says there in, in Acts 19 verse 34, for two hours, for two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. It's a bit overkill. But you see their, their love for their Artemis, their, their deity. That, that's, that's no God at all. And then we're wore out saying for three stanzas, three minutes. And actually there is a snapshot of worship in heaven. It's it's in Revelation 4, and there we're told that the living creatures, day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They never cease day or night worshiping and praising the Lord. I fear we may be a bit uncomfortable in heaven. It's because we don't fully grasp His greatness. And we're just content with a little one-off. Yeah, God's good. No, He's really good. And Yahweh did not gradually attain greatness. The Lord is intrinsically good. He's intrinsically, intrinsically great. I should have just stuck with saying it one time. But then we go on here. It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. This word for praise here is the Hebrew word Hallel. And you know where this goes. Hallel, and then there's a, yeah, it's a compound word. So, hallelujah is praise the Lord. And we actually even get that in Revelation 19. When the, when the Lord returns, we have four hallelujahs being shouted out. And so when we have the word hallelujah in our Bibles, the English word hallelujah, that's, that's actually a transliteration of the Greek word hallelujah. Just a transliteration. Which actually, the Greek is actually borrowing it from the Hebrew. So, just so you know, you can speak a little English, a little Greek, and a little Hebrew. Kind of crosses the languages there. But it moves on. It says, beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion. Now, by the way, Mount Zion is uh, kind of synonymous with, with Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is on Mount Zion, so really the same thing being said there. Mount Zion to the far north. 
in the city of our great king. Now, if you looked at a map, I'm sure we've all studied maps of ancient Israel. Uh, Jerusalem, Zion, is not in the far north. It's just not. But, but, when the kingdom was divided into Israel and Judah, the north and the south, Jerusalem, the temple, was in the far north of the southern kingdom. Maybe, maybe that's what's being said there. And if this is, if, if this is the case, it's going to place the writing of this psalm during the divided kingdom era, just food for thought. But, there may be one more kind of wordplay going on here, one more little jab by this psalmist. It says here, in the far north, some translations actually have it, the heights of Zaphon. Now, Zaphon is transliterated. It's actually the Hebrew word, which means north. So you see where they, how they arrived, where they did here in the ESV. But it could also be a proper name, Zaphon. It's a Canaanite god, Baal Zaphon. You can read about it in Exodus. You can read about it, I think, in, in, in Numbers. It may be what the psalmist is saying, just a little jab. God is not dwelling in Mount Zaphon. God dwells among His people here in Jerusalem. And God is known, it says here in verse 3, as a fortress. He's known as a refuge. When armies surround the city, when armies surround the people of God, God will fight for. Let's read 4 through 8. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took the flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the, by the east winds, you shattered the ships of Tarsus. As we've heard, so have we seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. You see at the beginning of verse 4, it's 4. Here, here's the reason for this celebration. Here's the reason for this praise that we read in verse 1 about praising God greatly to be praised. Here's why. Because it says the kings assembled. They came on together. You know, this kind of really mirrors a little bit of Psalm 2, the way that's structured. But the, the word here, coming on together and advancing together, it can actually be translated as transgression, believe it or not. So what Gerald Wilson points out, again, another wordplay here, he says, quote, those who advance in hostility on the city of God are simultaneously labeled as transgressors, end quote. They're advancing in hostility against the city of God, transgressing God, fighting against God, united as they advance, as it says here. Verse 5 says, As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Look, there's a Latin phrase spoken by Julius Caesar. And it goes, Vini, vidi, vici. Vini, vidi, vici. And what that means is, I came, I saw, I conquered. We've all heard that. I came, I saw, I conquered. Calvin and Spurgeon and many others correctly observed that 
Here, what do we have? Verse 4, they came. Verse 5, they saw, they fled. <laughs> there is no vini, vidi, vici here. They fled in terror. As soon, verse 5 says, as soon as they saw it. Or the NIV actually puts it, as soon as they saw her, they were astounded. And her is naturally referencing the city of Jerusalem. And that is added for clarity by the translators. Even the it is added for clarity. So the question remains, what did they see? Did they see the city? Did the sight of the city cause them to flee in terror? And that would, that would mirror what the NIV is saying when they saw her. Or maybe they said they saw it. They saw the fact that God was fighting for His people, that God was His fortress. They saw that and they fled in terror. I would lean that way myself. Then it goes on, it says they were astounded. As soon as they saw it, as soon as they saw that God was for His people, they were astounded. Now, we, sometimes we use that word astounded as where you're just awestruck, you know, your mouth's just jaws dropped and mouth open, amazed and all. But this word astounded has the connotations of fear. And that's clear as we keep reading. Actually, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says they were froze with fear. Right? That, that, that definitely captures the thought. Because we see as we continue that they were... They were astounded. They were froze in fear. They were in panic. They took the flight. They trembled. They were in anguish. Right? All this is fear-driven when they saw it, when they saw the fact that God was fighting for His people. So they came together, we notice. Verse 4, the kings assembled. They came on together. They're fleeing together. So much for strength in numbers. So then we move on. Their trembling took hold of them. Anguish as, as, a, as of a woman in labor. Verse 7, By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. The ships of Tarshish. Now some of you may be thinking, I think I've heard that somewhere before, Tarshish. I think I've... Somewhere. Some, I mean, everybody's grinning, so maybe some of you are starting to connect the dots here. If you've been thinking about it, it's actually mentioned in Jonah. Jonah is one of the first places you ought to think of. Jonah 1, verse 2, the Lord says to Jonah, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. So we know Tarshish is definitely a place. It was a large seaport in what's believed to be southern Spain. Basically, it's as far west as they could go. You know, it's where the, the Mediterranean kind of opens up into the uh, Atlantic. The thing in Jonah's day is Jonah was told to go to Nineveh in Assyria, east. Jonah gets on, a, gets on a boat and goes as far to the, to the westernmost point of the world that he can get to, that, of their day. So now that you have the visual of where Tarshish is, let's kind of describe some of these 
ships that we're talking about here. And what it's talking about when it says the ships of Tarshish, it's not that they were necessarily built in Tarshish. That's not the point that's being said here. It's actually a type of ship. It was a, a, it's, it's a reference to a large, commercial, long-distance ship. Ship long enough to economically make that long voyage. That's what's being spoken of there. And I, I base that on the fact that Jehoshaphat, one of the kings of Judah, actually built some ships of Tarshish. He built these large ships to make these long journeys as he was trying to, to pull in some materials. And so we're here in verse 7, it says, You shattered the ships of Tarshish. The NET actually says, You shatter the large ships. Either way, I just kind of want you to, to understand. It's not that Tarshish necessarily has come against his people here. It's just the fact that there are these large seagoing vessels that are coming. And they're destroyed by God. The equipment intended to intimidate, to strike fear, is destroyed by what? The wind. The east wind. That's Sirocco, right? The eastern wind. Shattered. You know, Proverbs 30 says that the Lord gathers the wind in His fist. Gathers the winds in His fist and just... You can also think of Jesus as He's in that boat and, and the storm has come upon that small boat and it's just being torn to pieces and they wake Jesus up frightened out of their mind and Jesus stands up and says, Quiet! Be still! And it says the, the winds and the sea obey Him, right? Who is this that the winds obey Him? So the wind obeys our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the God-man. The winds here are gathered into the fist of Yahweh and it's these winds that they can't control that just destroyed the, the largest known military equipment probably of their day. And you may think, wait, wait, maybe they should have designed them better, those ships, just where they get torn by the wind. That seems kind of puny. But look, these ships were tried and tested and proven to stand up against the wind and storm. That's what They made this journey a number of times. I'm sure they tweaked their engineering as they went along, and they were probably pretty good boats. But they had no chance in standing up against the Lord. That's what they've run up against. And you may say, well, I bet we could build one better than that today. I bet you'd be wrong. Amen. You know, Revelation 8, which is still yet future, it says the second angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So they're still coming a day, when the, the trumpet's going to sound and a third of the ships will be destroyed. So all our modern technology, all these, you know, these advancements that we have, material advancements, carbon, fiber, aluminum, you name it, I don't know, no architect, no engineer, no design, nothing can stand. Nada. Nada. I just not thought about that. So today, I spoke in Hebrew, spoke in a little Greek, Spoken Spanish. I've spoken Latin. So I'm a full-fledged linguist at this point. I'm going, to add, I'm going to add that to my resume. Okay. So look, nothing can stand against the Lord. And they had to learn it the hard way. And I'm afraid that our culture seems dead set on following in their footsteps. 
fighting against the Lord, trusting in technology, military might, or even gods, even little g gods. So, hey, maybe this is another subtle jab by this psalmist. At the Canaanite god Zephon. Cause Zephon, Baal Zephon, was the sea god, the storm god, the protector of maritime trade and navigation. So here they are trusting in maybe this Baal Zephon, maybe, maybe not. And Yahweh destroyed these large ships with wind. There's no hope in these ships, no hope in that pagan deity. Baal Zephon was just as impotent as the people. So you see here that their military might is hopeless. Their gods are, are useless. Their bravado is gone. They're heading for the hills. Verse 8. As we have heard, so have we seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Verse 5 says, They saw, right? You see verse 5? The kings assembled. I'm sorry. They came on together. Verse 5, as soon as they saw it. So they saw here, verse 8 says, We saw, or we've seen. The point is, they all saw the same thing. One group trembles in fear. One group erupts in praise. See the perspective? I was actually thinking about just the change of perspective at times. And I was thinking about Todd and Wendy. Todd is known as an early riser. Lives by the motto, the early bird gets the worm. Wendy, not so much. She lives by the motto, the second mouse gets the cheese. Right? <laughs> so it's just a matter of perspective at this point. One group, they all saw the same thing. One group is trembling in fear and the other group is praising the Lord. Praising the Lord. And it says here, the city of the Lord of hosts, which means the God of armies. The kings of the earth, up in verse 4, the kings, plural, of the earth, have come against the king. In the city of the king, the great king, verse 2. So the kings of the earth have assembled against the great king. The armies of the earth have assembled against the God of armies. We have a military term for this. It's called a suicide mission. But it's actually worse than that because a suicide mission, by definition, is where you're not expected to survive. Well, this is guaranteed defeat. There is no expectations of survival. This is worse than a suicide mission. But they march on. Verse 9. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your people. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgment. You see, someone had told them about the goodness of God. It says, we have we've heard. That's what it speaks of. I want you to kind of see this, the flow of this. Verse 8, I'm sorry. Verse 8, it says, we have heard. So in verse 8, someone had told them about this. We get that. They had believed it. Now it says, we have seen it. 
And, and, and we see down in verse 9, they're studying, they're thinking, they're meditating on this. We see on down in verse 10, they're telling others that the praise of Yahweh is reaching to the ends of the earth. Look in verse 13, we read it originally. It says, they would tell others so that they may tell the next generation. You see that progression? We were told, we believe, so now we're telling others who can teach others. The same thing Timothy speaks of in the New Testament. But it says in verse 9, we thought on your steadfast love. Steadfast love there being the covenant love of God, the, the promises that God has made. That's what they're thinking on. The fact that God has made these promises with them, it, they're unilateral promises. They're not, any, they're not conditional on their actions. That's what, they're, that's what they're thinking on. Now look, if the Lord to you is simply a passing thought, I'd be worried. I'd be worried. Because God's people read, they study, they pray, they commune, they think about God and His promises. So if the last time you thought about God was last Sunday, that's not a good sign. And of course they thought about God. Their parents had told them. We read that in verse 8. We've heard, we've heard. Look, but, but what if this... I don't know this, but my, I just wonder this. What if they thought about God's promises while the enemy was approaching? Hmm? When they saw these large ships run aground, this massive, combined, united army advancing, what would you think about? Don't give me the Sunday school answer. What would you think about? I can make a run for it. Maybe we need to surrender in peace. We've only got three weeks of food. You've already started rationing this out. What would you think about? Would, would, we, would our mind take us to the feet of the Lord? Would it? To the feet of the Lord and His promises. Oh, I pray they would because you, you better sink your teeth into that. That's what you better sink your teeth into. Because bad news is coming. It's inevitable. Bad news will come. I'm not trying to allegorize this passage, but look, the things you may trust in, whether it be your health, whether it be you know, your wealth, your money, your finances, or whatever, all those things can be taken from you. And not gradually, they may be taken from you in the blink of an eye. But the one thing that can never be taken from you are the promises of God. Sink your teeth into that. So I wondered if maybe this is what the psalmist is saying. We, we, we thought about it. When, they were, when the ships were landed, they were approaching. Everyone's in fear. We thought on your covenant love. That you had promised to be with your people. We can trust in that. Verse 12 and 14, 12 through 14. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through the citadels that you might tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us. Look, I think what's being said here is they are not a war-torn and tattered people. 
These are visual reminders that God protects His people. You know, it's not like these things are just torn down and they escape by the skin of their teeth. Because it says, as soon as they came, as soon as they saw it, verse 5, as soon as they saw it, as soon as they came in the sight of the city, they fled. So this is not a war-torn and tattered city. Verse 13, it says, so they should consider this. Consider her ramparts. Go through her citadels so that they may tell the next generation. That's something to think about. Now, if God is really as good as you think He is, then why would you keep it to yourself? Maybe your silence speaks volumes on what you actually do think about God. Verse 14, that this God, our God, forever and ever, He will guide us forever. I don't know if you have a footnote in your Bible for verse 14, but it says in mine, it says, it's possible it says, He will guide us beyond death. Well, that's, that's something, isn't it? That really stresses the forever part. I thought about this because as, as, a, as a husband and a father, you, you try to lead, you try to protect, you try to guide your, your wife and kids or your family. But my ability and my responsibility ends at the grave. Not so with our Lord. He will guide us forever. Forever. He will guide us beyond death. What's being said here. So just to kind of sum up this thing real quick, it says God is great. And I mean really great. And God dwells among His people here in Jerusalem. That's what's being said. Sure, the Canaanites have, they say the same about their God, Baal Zephon. But their gods don't carry them. They carry their gods. That's Jeremiah 10. The Lord is the one true God, the God most high. That's what he means. You may have your gods, but our God's higher. Our God is the God most high. In the times of distress, our God is present. He is not just to call away. He is present. And though all the strength, the intelligence, the unity that this world can muster to come against the Lord, the battle will be over before it even begins. Our parents may have taught us of His greatness, and now we see it. Now we believe it. We will speak His praises to the end of the earth. We'll teach others who will teach the next generation. That's what's being said. Because God is great, and I mean really great. But a few more things. I kind of brushed over this in verse 3. It says up in verse 3, it says, God has made Himself Known. God has made Himself known. Look, the knowledge and understanding of that there is a God is natural. It's in and it's innate to mankind. That's Romans one. But God has made Himself known in the fact that God interacts with His creation. Hebrews one puts it this way: Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, long ago, at many times, many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God would speak to maybe Isaiah and says, Thus says the Lord, and Isaiah would speak to the people 
for the Lord, right? On behalf of the Lord. He spoke to them through just audible declarations. He spoke to them through dreams and visions. He spoke to our fathers in many ways. Verse 2 says, but... So there's a contrast coming. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by a son. So that means he's not speaking to us in the same way that he did in the Old Testament. Right? I think that's pretty clear. So what's being said there is Jesus is the visible expression of God. So much so that John 14, you know, Philip actually looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is God incarnate. He is the God-man. And so when you see Christ, everything about Jesus was, was just the expression of God. So he's, he's basically, Jesus came and just cleared away all the fog. From His sovereignty to His power to His love. And so really going outside the Scriptures and searching for new revelation is ultimately saying that the God who has described Himself in His own Word doesn't satisfy you. That's what you're saying. You'd rather have a God of your own imagination. In 2018, Pew Research says this. This is Christian. No, I'm sorry, this is Americans. 2018 Pew Research did a survey of America. 56% of the people say they believe in God, quote, as described in the Bible. 56% of people say they believe in God as described in the Bible. Another 25% of people said they believe in God, just not the God described in the Bible. Well, what God do you believe in? The one that you've created? Well, then you're no different than Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Ellen White. J.C. Ryle had this quote. Beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who is all mercy but not just. A God who is all love but not holy. A God who has a heaven for everybody but a hell for none. A God who can allow good and bad to be side by side in time, but will make no distinction between good and broad in eternity. Such a God is an idol of your own. And truly an idol as any snake or crocodile in an Egyptian temple. The hands of your own fancy and sentiment have made him. He is not the God of the Bible. And besides the God of the Bible, there is no God at all. End quote. So what we said here, that God has made Himself known. And the God who has described Himself in His Word tells us at the end of the book, Behold, I'm coming soon. He tells us later on in that same book that every eye will see Him. Similar to what we saw in verse 8, right? They all saw the same thing. So when the Lord returns, it's going to to create two completely different emotions. One, one group will rejoice at His coming. The other group will tremble in fear, crying for the mountains to fall down on them. But once the battle begins, the sides are chosen, and it's too late. 
few more questions that Paul asked in Romans 2. He asked them, Do you think you will escape the judgment of God? Then he goes on. Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience? What he's saying is God is patient with you. He's kind to you. And you're showing contempt for all the good things He's given you. Do you not know that the kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? The goodness of God to a world full of rebels? That's the love of God. The love of God is expressed perfectly in John 3.16 when He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So don't be like the enemies of the Lord that we read here and, and put too much stress and emphasis and hope in numbers and equipment and rally the forces and muster the troops and come up against the Lord only to come up short. I pray that we trust in the Lord and we have the confidence that these men did that we can, we can trust in those promises even in the midst of... Uh, Great peril. Would please stand.